and let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you so much for the day that you have unfolded for us. You have really outdone yourself. We look at the skies and we feel the sun and we are so grateful. We're grateful that we sit at, at tables with, with friends, maybe new friends, maybe old friends, but that we're together in a place that we have a common bond. We love you. And therefore, we have history with each other. God, we thank you for the stories from our ancestors and our ancestors' ancestors. From the beginning of time as human beings, God, you have come alongside us. You have, in your creation of us, wired us to have a longing for you. And so to fulfill that longing, we come together in worship and praise. And we come together in study. And we come together in an openness to your spirit. So we pray that you would bless us today as we enter into this story. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So the way I want to start it today is I'd like to give you just a little bit of an overview. And then oh, I know that what we've done in the past, for in the past few times that I've been with you, is we do read a chapter, we stop, we talk about that chapter, and then we read the next one. But honestly, these three chapters that we're going to talk about today are one narrative. They're one story. And I don't think it would serve it any better if we were to stop and talk about each one than it would for us just to read all three chapters and then talk and talk about it. So I'm going to present an overview. We're going to plow through and we're going to read that stories. And I hope it will be captivating to you. You won't be able to take your mind and attention off of the story because of what's happening in it. And then we'll unpack some of that afterwards. So does that sound like a good deal? And in between all of that, if you have a question, if you have an observation, if you have a, something that happened in your life that, uh, uh, that is, pertains to what we're talking about, then please just interject, raise your hand, and let's, let's hear about that. The first thing I wanted to uh, call to your attention, is, and it's, uh, it's, it's more fleshed out in part of the handout that is on the back of your notes. And you don't have to look at those right now, but you, I hope that you'll read it later because it'll give you a more fleshed out uh, understanding of what I'm about to introduce to you, which is a term called chiasmus. And chiasmus is a literary device that is utilized in this particular unit, 42 through 44. And it's utilized for a particular reason. And, but first, I'd like to explain that to you. So in the Bible, chiasmus was intentionally employed by both writers and speakers because it not only helped emphasize key elements and a key point, but it also, it's very lyrical. Because what it is, is you have a set, you have a, 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 an idea that's set forth. And you say the idea in one, two lines, and then you flip it over and you say the same idea in reverse order. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples in just a minute. But that's what you do, it's like a mirror. And you'll see this all through the scriptures. I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, but you'll also see it in other literature. And you particularly see it in the Psalms because it is a device that's lyrical patterns and because and why do we why do they use that because it's easier for people to understand to absorb and to memorize and remember that considering that most of the bible was spoken or even sung long before anything was ever written down the the way language and ideas are uh, presented in oral cultures were sometimes just as important than what they what was being said. So we know that lyrical patterns help us remember. And so you'll see that um, you know you'll see that in poetry, in music lyrics, in children's literature in particular, that these lyrical uh, presentations are made. I know my granddaughters uh, just uh, the youngest one just memorized all the. Um, uh, all of the major continents with a song. 
there's a major content names and they you know like that and she could do it like that the only problem is you have you know 27 third graders singing in your classroom but it does help and remember for us a b c d e f g right we remember things when they're in a song a sing song lyrical pattern and it's much easier for us to understand so a chiasmus is utilized in that way. And in this unit today, 42 through 44, a chiasmus is used where the first sequence, we'll see, the first sequence is Joseph speak, Joseph acts, and then Jacob. And then it flips around, and then it's Jacob, then Joseph. So it's a chiasmus in that way. And you might just pay attention to that when you look at it. It's just something interesting, and you might begin to recognize that when you come to, especially the Psalms and other things, when it keeps repeating and you're like, didn't they just say that? Well, and it's also some famous literature in which it's used. There's a speech by, uh, that's attributed to John F. Kennedy uh, that I think is not his, what was it? Who is it by Alder, Oliver Wendell Holmes? Yeah, she has done some research and found out that our John F. Kennedy did some plagiarism. So um, in one of his famous speeches where he's uh, uh, quoted Oliver Wendell Holmes, he says, ask not what your country can do for you. And then he flips it and says, ask what you can do. You see, you remembered it. And it, that's a chiasmus. You just, you say, you say the two lines, you flip them and you say them over again. And there's some, uh, many, many examples of that. And just one more example is when Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. And then it flips and he says, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. So it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. That's how a chiasmus works. Anyway, so pay attention to that if you can, or if you notice, that's kind of interesting for you. So um, these three chapters, 42 through 44, they, they form a very balanced counterpart to chapters 39 through 41. And, and it's, um, I want you to have this image. I'm gonna say a lot of chapters, so just kind of bear with me. Chapter 37 and 45, have in your mind this image, our bookends. You know, whatever kind of bookends, maybe they're marble bookends, maybe they're, they're elephants with their trunks, but they are bookends, 37 and 45 are bookends to 39 through 44 in the middle. And 37 and 45, the, the, um, the two intervening sections, 39 through uh, 41 and 42 through 44, develop and enhance the plot whereas 37 and 45 are the theological interpretation. So we have a theological interpretation that's presented to us in 37. We have the plot line that's filled in for us, 39 through 44. Then we have the bookend on the other side, 45, where the theological interpretation raises up again, and we, it, and we come back to what is this all about? in the whole world uh, of God. So after uh, chapter 37, the narrative is developed into two very quite distinct directions. And we can see that, okay, so we have the bookends. Now in the middle, we have 39 and 41, and we have 42 through 44. So those are the two sections. Can you see those volumes in between the bookends? So those volumes are in between the bookends. Now in 39 through 41, the whole reason for 39 through 41 is concerned with Joseph's rise in the empire of Egypt and his rule over Egypt. That's what 39 through 41 is all about. Do you remember? There's not even any mention of the brothers. That's far behind. We don't even, we don't know anything about them from 39 to 41, nothing. Because he's now in Egypt and he's in Potiphar's uh, Potiphar's house, and then he's in prison, and then he's uh, picked up by the Pharaoh. Okay, so in 39 through 41, the development is all external. 39 through 41, it's all about what's happening out here. Then we come to 42 through 44. 
the next volume in between the bookends. 42 through 44 concerns not his rule over Egypt, but his rule over his brothers and over his father. And the interplay in that is primarily relational and even psychological. Okay, so these two volumes, 39 through 41, rule over Egypt, all about what is happening out here. 42 through 44, it's all about his brothers, his rule over his family, and what's happening inside in their hearts and minds and what's going on. So externally, what, what we're gonna find is from 42 through 44, we're not gonna find much progress made towards, uh, um, towards the story. What we're gonna find now is the progress that's made in us understanding the people in the story. So at the end of 44 today, we're not gonna know what's gonna happen because it's gonna be the most major cliffhanger ever, except maybe for Good Friday, you know? So it's a major cliffhanger. So that's what I mean by 39 through 44. We don't see any really plot movement, but we see lots of stuff going on in that, but we're still unresolved and we still don't have any resolution by 44. All right, so chapter 42, where we start today, returns us to the brothers. We're now going back. Where we've been in Egypt, we've been uh, consumed with that external experience. Now we're coming back to the brothers. So we're going to start with, you know, one thing I wanted to say is, I don't know any other way to get around this but to read this. So I don't want to summarize for you. I don't want to do a Jan Spark Notes. And so we're just going to have to read it. And I personally think it's pretty good. It's good practice to read the Bible. So, all right. <clears throat> so let's start with chapter 42. Here we go. We're back to the brothers. When Jacob, you remember the dad, right? And he's back, he's back in Canaan. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? I have heard, he said, that there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus, the sons of Israel were among the other people who came to buy grain, for the famine had reached the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Although Joseph had recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. He said to them, you're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. But he said to them, no, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of a certain man in the land of Canaan. The youngest, however, is now with our father, and, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is just as I have said to you, you are spies. Here is how you shall be tested. As Pharaoh lives, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Let one of you go and bring your brother while the rest of you remain in prison, in order that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else as Pharaoh lives, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are in prison. The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me. 
Thus your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they agreed to do so. They said to one another, Alas, we are paying the penalty. Okay, listen to this. Alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. Then Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to wrong the boy? But no, you would not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, since he spoke with them through an interpreter. He turned away from them and wept. Then he returned and spoke to them, and he picked out Simeon and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. They loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. When one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money at the top of the sack, and he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in my sack. At this they lost heart, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to us and charged us with spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, take grain for the famine of your household, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will release your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each one sack was his bag of money. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father Jacob said to them, I am the one you have bereaved of children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has happened to me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should come to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten up the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again. By the way, Simeon is still there. Go, go again, buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. And let us be on our way, so that we may live and not die, you and we and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You can hold me accountable for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, by the way, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry them down as a present to the man. A little balm and a little honey gum, a little resin, a little pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. 
Carry back with you the money that was returned in the top of your sack. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and be on your way again to the man. Then he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he may send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present and they took double the money with them as well as Benjamin. Then they went on their way down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It's because of the money. Place, replaced in our sacks the first time that we have been brought in so that he may have an opportunity to fall upon us, to make slaves of us and take our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and they spoke with him at the entrance to the house. And they said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each one's money in the top of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back with us. Moreover, we have brought down with us additional money to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, the steward replied to them, rest assured, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your sacks for you. For I received my money. Wow. Then he brought Simeon out to them. When the steward had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they would dine there. When Joseph came home, they brought him the present that they had carried into the house and bowed to the ground before him. He inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, your father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and did obeisance. Then he looked up and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. With that, Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with affection for his brother. And he was about to weep. So he went into a private room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the meal. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. When they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, the men looked at another in amazement. Portions were given to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. 44. When he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the top of the sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the top of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. When they had gone only a short distance from the city, Joseph said to his steward, go. Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you returned evil for good? Why have you stolen my silver cup? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? Does he not indeed use it for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. When he overtook them, he repeated these words to them, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants that they should do such a thing. Look, look, the money that we found at the top of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Why then would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Should it be found with any one of your servants, let him die. Moreover, the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. 
He said, even so, in accordance with your words, let it be. He with whom it is found shall become my slave, but the rest of you shall go free. Then each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. They each one loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house while he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that one such as I can practice divination? And Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Here we are then, my Lord's slaves, both we and also the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the one in whose possession the cup was found shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah stepped up to him and said, O oh my Lord, let your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his age. His brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother goes with us will we go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm comes to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in sorrow to Sheol. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became surety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame in the sight of my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon my father. What a story. Oh, my goodness. That is such a story about, well, Joseph in this story is the one, it's the son who knows everything that's happening, right? He's in the know. He's behind the scenes. The others, they don't recognize him. So he, he knows what's going on. So in that sense, he holds all the power. And by contrast, Jacob is a father who's sitting back at home, and he knows nothing of what's going on. And so the external agenda is that there's a prince, that is Joseph, of an empire giving food to the helpless family. That's the way the story, that's the setting in which the, the way the narrator of this particular unit sets up the story. That's the external agenda. That's the kind of the plot line. The internal agenda is the control of Benjamin and the plot of revenge. So you might be having some questions about now, like, I thought, I thought Jacob had 12 sons, and he talks about only having two sons. Well, who did he have two sons with? Rachel. Who did he love the most? Rachel. Leah was just, she gave him lots of sons, but 
She was not the loved one. She was not the one that he went for. So in his eyes, he still only has two sons. Imagine this. Jacob is still setting his son by Rachel, Benjamin, up in the same way that Joseph was set up as the favored one. But there's something different about this time because of the, the situation of the other brothers. So there's a dramatic a power is in the unequal struggle between father and son. And the brothers are the intermediaries. The brothers are the intermediaries at this point. And in that struggle, Joseph, the son, is going to win. He'll win because he controls the food. He'll win because he has the necessary knowledge. And he'll win because he had the dream in which all of them, including the father and the mothers, bowed down to him. By the end of this unit, we'll only wait a little longer to, to find out the full disclosure of what happens when all of this comes to light. But as usual, Genesis, this is kind of, I think you'll notice this in retrospect, as you've read Genesis, you'll notice that it emphasizes the long, slow journey from hurt to healing, from betrayal to forgiveness. And, you know, in Genesis, there, there's a different sense of time. You know, and we're, I'm not talking about Genesis as being the first book. I'm, I'm talking about Genesis being a primitive writing. I mean, that it's looking back at primeval history. But it's not being looked at by primeval people. It's being looked at by people from the 5th century, looking 5th century BC, looking back and putting the stories together. So, but it has, but all of these stories you'll see have a long history of healing, including Father Jacob, who had to go away, serve for 14 years, and then establish before he could come home. So as we will see, there'll be more tears and there's more tumultuous emotions that'll be experienced on both sides before the father and the son have a reunion. So time is a slow healer. We, that's, what we, that's one of the things we learn from this. And the detailed description of the phase, this phase of Joseph's story reflects his gradual recovery, although he's got a, a ways to go before he recovers. And I want us to stop here, just a little insert, pause here for a moment. Once more, we're reminded that these are archetypal stories. Can you see that? They're archetypal stories. They do not simply refer to a story about a man and a son, or a man and 12 sons even. These are the 12 tribes. These are, this is a man who represents the power struggle between the, the Egypt and between the, the tribes, this, the people of God that are trying to emerge that will become the people that bring Christ to us later on. How are they going to do that in the situation they're in right now? So they're archetypal stories. They're stories that expose the messy and complicated and rich dynamic of human development. We see human development going on here. There's suffering and there's grief and there's revenge and there's compassion and there's forgiveness and there's mercy. And all the storylines, all of them, all the storylines as a people emerge from their primitive understanding of themselves. Did you know that in history, there's a particular period of history, especially with the beginning of the Hebrew people, where they had no sense of time, so they had no sense of future and they had no sense of past because they were nomadic and they moved around. So sure, they had their stories that they told, but they did not know how their present behavior affected the future because there was no future for them in their way of thinking. It's, I know it's hard to wrap your mind around, but it really helps you to understand why some of the things they did were some of the things they did. So the story of all humanity and the relationship that is emerging with the one true God and how the one true God interacts and engages with humanity is being, uh, uh, is being exposed for us in this. So meanwhile, the dramatic contrast between father and son presents to us a very different Joseph than we've seen before. And we have seen the evolution of Joseph come in this, and then we'll see the evolution of Joseph and make kind of make, make a full circle, but not quite yet. In chapter 37, do you remember he was a 17-year-old kid, guileless and naive and arrogant? Hey, brothers, I'm going to be ruling over you. Not once, but twice, he says that to them. And then he says it to his father, and his father doesn't take too kindly to that either. Then in chapter 39 through 41, he's this noble, 
and effective man of integrity. He's not intimidated by a royal woman who has the hots for him. He has, he's not intimidated by the royal officers in the prison he's in. He's not intimidated even by the Pharaoh himself. He's a man of integrity that stands tall. He, but in 42 through 44, he now has more of a ruthless and calculating governor. He, he understands the potential of his enormous office and he exploits his capacity fully. He not only manipulates the scene, but he seems to relish in the power to intimidate and threaten. No, you're spies. I know you're spies. You can't tell me that he didn't like that a little bit inside of him. Perhaps we have here the result of a very different process of tradition. Maybe it's the different writers coming in. I'm sure you saw how the different writers contributed to the story. We have one saying Reuben is the one that kind of saves the day. And when, then we have Judah, who's the kind of saves the day. So we have these different writers. And they're like, it's, there's room for everybody. Let's tell both stories. So they come into that. So, Or it just could be it's a different... It is the evolution of a person, how a person who has power evolves into a kind of a soulless situation. The agenda of this narrative concerns members of the family and, and coming to terms with each other and with the past and with the dream. So that's the agenda. So the agenda is set within a famine. And I, you may not have noticed this because sometimes we just start reading and we don't notice, but you know, the, a famine, a global famine, is really a, an incredibly disastrous and catastrophic event, isn't it? I mean, thousands and thousands of people still die to this day in 2024 when we can helicopter food in and stuff, but a famine when there's a drought and, and all of this, a famine would have been affected. People would have been dropping dead. Families would have been. But do you notice that the famine is really never addressed? There's not really any telling about the famine or it's, there's not any social justice you know, written within this. It's a cold calculating story and that's because the famine is simply used as a backdrop and an occasion for the narrative. So in addition to food, this family is struggling to survive on several levels. The struggle for survival is at the same time a struggle for faith. Because right now the brothers have no faith and there's a reason that they have no faith. It's a struggle to trust a promise. What promise is that? What, has the, what have these people been promised? Do you remember? Way back at the beginning. What were they promised? They were promised that they would flourish and there would be as many as grains of the sand. And so they, they had no trust in that promise and to believe in the power of a dream. So the intricacies of family relations become the mode in which faithlessness is at issue in which the future has to be received because there is no future without faith. So we're concerned with a specific family in this battling a specific dream, but the specific family represents the larger family and the specific dream represents the larger dream of God. Survival and faithfulness are the demanding issues in this, in the empire. So at this point, it might be helpful to look at the three main characters of, our, characters of our story. The first set of characters are the brothers. Now, how many brothers are named in this story? How many brothers are we introduced to? The one who's being held captive, Simeon, right? Who else is speaking? Judah speaks. Reuben speaks. And Joseph speaks. How many brothers are there all together? Twelve brothers, four brothers speak. So this is what they're doing is presenting all these characters as one unit. They're undifferentiated except for a few speeches here and there. So the, they are pretty much undifferentiated, but they are all bound together. And this is a very important piece of this story. They are all bound together by their initial act against Joseph. They are bound together in secrecy. Now, let me, let me just give you an example. In a family where there is, a, is an abuser, quite often, if that, if that is never addressed, if there is never any healing, if that is never 
talked about together in therapy and in, in, in being addressing that. That family will hold that secret, and they'll probably do one or two things. They'll either enmesh and become tight so that the whole world never knows their secret, and they, they are simply uh, have relationship because of that secret, or they will scatter and be no more, and they will go as far away from each other as possible because that secret is just so painful. So at this point, we have their bound together. The resulting deception of their father lies at the bottom of, of so much of this story, and you can see it woven through the whole thing. The brothers have no room in which to act. They, they have no energy for imagination. They can't imagine that God is with them or that God is going to intervene or that God is going to do anything about this situation. None. And no possibility of freedom. This is how it's going to be. This is what's going to happen to us. They're bound by the power of an unforgiven past, immobilized by guilt, and driven by anxiety. That's what secrets and that's what deception can do for you. The guilt of the brothers has enormous power. Listen to what they said. They said, first they said, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. So they bring it up right here. And then we said, how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. We can't, we can't clear ourselves. God knows now. Now, is it just occurring to them now that God knows? It, to me, it reminds me of Adam and Eve walking and, and, and that whole story of, of disobeying God, and then they hide from God like children, as though God would know. And Cain and Abel, where's your brother? I don't know. I don't have no idea. As though God didn't know. So now they're saying God knows. Oh, it's all in the open now. They are not free to have faith. They are harnessed to the past. So they are excessively concerned for the safety and well-being of their father and Benjamin because one, they know they cannot do to Benjamin what they did to Joseph. And two, they cannot lie and deceive their father the same way they did with Joseph. So they are tied up in this. And because they could not believe the dream, they treat Jacob as though he's the last generation. They can't see themselves as being the, a generation of promise bearers. They're not going to be the ones who are going to make the land flourish and do all of this. They can't do it. They're, they're, the, they're the, the, the ones stained by this sin that they've committed. They are faded and locked to a past moment. They can't see a generation past themselves. They, they cannot be open to any new possibility, either as a new gift from God or as a fresh work of Joseph. But meanwhile, while they're wringing their hands and, and, and sweating this out and trying to figure out what, you know, how, what's going to happen, meanwhile, Joseph's dream is moving on, isn't it? They don't even realize it. Joseph doesn't even realize these brothers have come and been bowing down to him, and they don't even realize it. You see, even when we're wringing our hands over our troubles and travails and all of this stuff, and we don't know how we can get out of something, over here, life is unfolding. And sometimes it takes us to step back and let life unfold without trying to squeeze the life out of it. The future is at work towards life. But in their fearfulness, the, the brothers don't even notice it. And in their sense of fadedness touches their understanding of God. In chapter 44, they link their guilt to God. In 42, they say, what is this that God has done to us? God is the one that put that money back in the sack so they could get caught. That's what they're under their impression. In their limited view of God, they see their guilt as the definitive factor in human and divine relations. Because I'm guilty... God can't love me. Have you ever been that exception? I have sat and counseled with people who said, no, God, God can't love me. I've, I've done this and I've done that. And I'm like, wow. Boy, you think a lot of yourself. You think you're the exception to God being able to forgive you? And I understand this much more complicated than what I'm saying right now, but... So the second character in um, this interplay is Jacob, the father. So in both 42 and 43, it's Jacob who initiates the trip to Egypt. Isn't that funny? The other brothers are sitting around. We're not going back to Egypt. And the father says, hey, hey, you guys, 
can you not see that we are in need of food? Go on down to Egypt and get some food. So he plays a part in serving Joseph's dream. But his life is defined also by his son's deception because the one thing that we understand about Jacob is he has grieved Joseph since Joseph has gone missing, hasn't he? He's never gotten over it. And all his words reflect the heavy loss of Joseph, and he's afraid to risk more. He doesn't want to lose Benjamin. But in 43, 11 through 14, there's a break in the grief, I think, which bears looking at. In a final resolve for bread, Jacob releases his cherished Benjamin in a very stylized speech. Take some of the choice fruits. By the way, the same things that were offered him, he offered Esau when he returned home. He's saying, take these things now and offer them to Joseph. And take double the money and take your brother. And then the basis for sending the young man. May El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. In the Hebrew, he uses the oldest name for God. So all of a sudden, in this new kind of techie, uh, a version of Joseph, we have the narrator reaching back into the oldest language and bring and bringing it back, Jacob's faith back into the present by Jacob blessing him with that ancient terminology. So Jacob the father invokes this old name for God and hopes for mercy. Everything is staked in this one name. He dares to think of a new possibility. He says, we're not alone. God will go with him. And at the same time, he breaks the son's spiral of betrayal and deception. He allows them, he, he makes it not impossible for them to make this right. So Jacob is a picture of faithfulness that permits newness. He's able to care and grieve and therefore to hope. And in, in his old age, he's still a man more faithful and a more faithful passion than his sons. Who knows where his sons could be if they had not been weighed down by such guilt. And he knows that only mercy can break the cycle. So we finally come to the third character, who is Joseph. He is the one whom the others think is dead, but he holds all the power of life in his hands. He knows more than others, and, but he doesn't know everything. He's not an innocent bystander to these strange turns. So Joseph's sense of his own interest is really keen, and we see have seen him evolve, that he's got to do some things to get right with God also. He's cast by the narrator in a public role as a very benevolent administrator. He's doling out at a price. He's making money for the pharaoh, but he's the one giving all the money out. So, um, And in that role, he expresses what can only be passed as a civil religion. So it's not really a religious thing when he says, after all, I'm not going to do this to you. I fear God. Remember, he married the daughter of, a, uh, of the high priest in the high religion of Egypt. Now, you and I both know that as the husband, he's going to go to her church. We all know that. So has he been devoting himself to the worship of, of El Shaddai, of Yahweh? Probably not. The narrator doesn't paint Joseph as a person with any devout commitment at all. In fact, there's no clue that he's committed. From his public disclosure, Jacob has, seems like a governor void of, of passion. And beneath that cool front, though, there are two further facets of Joseph's person, which are important for this narrative. So he's presented as a ruthless, cunning, and vengeful. And he's prepared, he's fully prepared to return to his brothers the grief that they gave to him. I mean, he starts right off accusing them, you're a bunch of spies, and you know, you're, and, and you know they're shaky. They're just this band of ragged you know, brothers that are there. And, and there's nothing noble about him. There's no hint that he has any awareness of a larger vocation, of a larger story at this point. He has forgotten his own dream. He's only thought of his own dream as where he is now, not where God is going to have him be. So he remembers the dream, but he, he doesn't remember it with vocation or fidelity. But he isn't without passion. His passion is not for his brothers, not for the well-being of his family, not for his father. His passion is for his brother, Benjamin. Now, in the Hebrew, the word passion, they kind of use the word passion, but the real word is yearning. It's his yearning for his brother. 
And, the, and this yearning sets him on a collision course with the brother's deception and the grieving father. So Joseph's fixation on Benjamin allows the reader, finally, we take a breath, and it allows us to move the drama along. Because all of a sudden, you've had the fathers, and you had the sons, and, you, and the camera pans over here. And all of a sudden, Benjamin walks in the room, and the camera stops, and it looks at Jacob, and Jacob looks at Benjamin, and it goes to Benjamin, and Benjamin looks at Jacob. And all of a sudden, now we move forward. And all of a sudden, we see Joseph has a new possibility. Joseph isn't stuck in the past anymore. Joseph is now looking to the future. And Benjamin is going to be part of that future. And in subsequent history, as these brothers become tribes, the tribes of Benjamin and Joseph and the tribes of Joseph are Ephraim and Manasseh. Do you remember those names? Who are Ephraim and Manasseh? They're Joseph's sons. So the tribes of uh, Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be the future of the new Israel. Those tribes. It's they who will shape the memory and receive the future. In closing, there are two speeches that transfer Benjamin from Jacob to Joseph. And from Palestine, we as the reader are transferred back from Palestine to Egypt. First is the release of Jacob. El Shaddai Grant you mercy. He's releasing Benjamin to go and go with God. And the next is the welcome of Joseph. God be gracious to you, my son. These are not lines taken at random. These two lines together frame a movement of Benjamin from one generation to the next. And together, these two speeches bestow on Benjamin the most profound blessing Israel has in its power to give. And then the unit ends with a cliffhanger. We don't know anything yet. We, all we know is that now Joseph has all the brothers in with him there. What is he going to do? It, it's, the speech of Judah is unanswered. The family has gone deeper. Benjamin is in jeopardy. The brothers are terrified. The father waits at a distance. But the narrator knows that God is at work. And, and the narrator got, lets us know that God moves on to keep the dream. And the human characters make their choices. And they had their freedom in all of this. And we see them making these choices, some good, some bad. But through and in spite of such freedom, God is at work. And the narrator will not let us forget that. So waiting has to happen because waiting is now part of the next section. Yay! All right, so that's the cliffhanger. So now you know, you guys, man, you're coming, you're coming, you're edging, and next week, a lot will be explained and a lot will be exposed. And then after that, good news, Jack is back. And he's gonna close out Genesis for you and he's gonna tie it all up with a neat bow. Not really, but he'll do a really great job with it. So anyway, thanks, you guys. May I offer a word of prayer for you, a word of blessing. God bless each one in this room today. And if they are gathering in group, bless each one in their group. Bless the group as a whole as they study and share and laugh and talk and maybe cry. Just being together is such a joy. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.